you know, this is different from usual respiratory failure. Here we are interacting with him on the highest level of life support. Silently tracing the cracks through the chaos. That is the emotional toll that nobody can describe. You just can't. Grieving what cannot come back. What's gone away. We're still doing what we think is our job. Just totally different now. Feeling the weight of the sorrow's night. I didn't know what else to do for him. You can't find your way through the black. So you pray. This isn't really what I thought I signed up for. This is the story of a perfect storm. What happens when struggling, overstressed healthcare workers in the midst of COVID-19 care for a man who embodies hope? From the Mind of Medicine podcast, this is Parallel Pandemics. I'm clinical health psychologist, Dr. Ryan Brashears. You're listening to episode three. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen Lord of the Rings, um, but there's an image of Ian McKellen, the actor who plays Gandalf. When he acted in the Hobbit movies, he had to act, do a lot of acting with like a green screen and just talk to a tennis ball. And this is like a classically trained actor, right? And at one point, so the story goes, he, he broke down on set crying because he was like, I just wasn't, you know, I didn't. I didn't go into acting so I could act with a tennis ball and a green screen. I went into acting so I could act with other people. It can be a bit unnerving. For instance, I was had a scene on my very first day back filming 13 Dwarves and the Hobbit. They're in one studio and I'm in another studio being filmed simultaneously by different cameras, hearing them through an earpiece and pretending that they're with me, looking at little uh, pictures of them on stands. It was very difficult. In an article published in The Guardian, McKellen exercised another level of candor about the impact of this change. He was quoted saying, It was so distressing and off-putting and difficult that I thought, I don't want to make this film if this is what I'm going to have to do. McKellen added, It's not what I do for a living. I act with other people. I don't act on my own. And I remember thinking, that's how I feel right now. I didn't go into this because I wanted to talk to a black box. I went into this field because I wanted to talk to people. Dr. Catherine Tripp brought us the story of McKellen and how his statements resonated with her. Dr. Tripp is a palliative medicine physician. She got her undergraduate degree from Georgia Tech, did medical school at the University of Chicago, a residency in internal medicine at Emory, and then a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship at Wellstar Kennestone. The pandemic hit as she was completing the final few months of her fellowship. And like McKellen, the way she had been trained and one of the aspects about her work that brought her fulfillment changed with COVID-19. I think um, for me, the factor that's affected my well-being the most is probably the, the lack of family at the bedside. And of course, there, there's a lot of other factors that have come up, but I remember early on in the pandemic, calling family members and talking to them through their loved one's illnesses. You know, I'll, I'll never forget hearing hearing a wife say goodbye to her husband over the phone, and I think that's, that's an experience a lot of people have had. 
Um, but for me personally, I remember sitting down uh, at my desk, about to pick up the phone and call like five different family members in a row and thinking, man, this isn't really what I thought I signed up for. She's not alone in this experience. Dr. Glenn Wakeham published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Not Dying Alone, Modern Compassionate Care in the COVID-19 Pandemic. While brief, it's a compelling and heart-wrenching account that's been echoed by many healthcare clinicians during this pandemic. The narrative tells the agonizing story of a COVID-positive patient dying in the ICU, his wife talking over cell phone with the resident and pleading for permission to sit with her husband while he took his final breaths. To their credit, hospitals have attempted to get creative, leveraging technology to hold Skype and WhatsApp virtual visits between patients and their families. But it's not the same for families, for patients, and certainly not for the attending healthcare clinicians. As humans, right, when you're suffering, you reach for the things that give you comfort. So that is always, right? It's your family. It's the people who love you. It's your support. And by definition with COVID, we have taken that away. We have put them in the rooms. The families can't come in there. So that's been hard to try to see our patients cope with already a really scary situation and then to take away their support. We try and our team has been phenomenal with going in there with FaceTime, you know, with the iPad so that they can video conference. But we know there's something cold about that too, to, to see your family member on a ventilator um, with that support, but not being able to hold their hand to talk to them ear to ear. Um, I don't know if it gives that comfort and satisfaction the way in normal times you would be there at their bedside. You're seeing it, smelling it, hearing it. Um, we're just missing something there. Humans were meant to be together. We try to, you know, make their stay more comfortable because they may not be getting visitors because of whatever's going on. So we become, a, that is it. essentially, like we become their family. That's the other thing. We become their family because their families can't see them. This pandemic over the last year and a half has completely changed the ICU. You know, we are their family. We are their family. The nurses are their family. They are the ones who are with them 12 hours a day from day, 7 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock, attending to their every need. When are they hurting? When do they need to be fed? When do they need to be changed? The way the ICU works right now is totally different than we used to. You know, we, we are very, we always say things like, you know, that we treat you as you are our family, right? But with the pandemic, I think this has really, really become true because we really, really are their family. We, people pass away in the ICU all the time. That's part of life. It became part of life for us. But when we have people passing away in the ICU, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, pre-lockdowns, we had their loved ones with them. The loved ones were holding their hands. The loved ones were there by their side. And then, you know, they're, they're being dignified. And then they pass away in peace, comfort, and dignity. That's not possible now. We can't have the family members in the ICU. They can't be there. And it's not humane to have somebody pass away alone. So that becomes us. We are holding their hands while they pass away. We are there with them while they pass away. One after one after one after one. A year and a half now. Uh, that is the emotional toll that nobody can describe. Nothing can describe that. 
it's when you're there, when they're taking their last breath, um, when you know you're the only solace they have, whether they are awake or not. That is something that you just you just can't, can't describe that. We're still doing what we think is our job. We are trying to give the patients and the families some sort of peace, some sort of closure. So we are there in the rooms, you know, in all our PPE with the FaceTime uh, with Zoom so that families can say goodbye. Um, it, it still feels like you are invading in a very intimate setting where normally that's when we would step out of the room and yet we're there holding the cell phone, holding the tablet. Um, and it, it feels uncomfortable and yet at the same time, you know, we've given them that peace and that closure and so maybe we are doing right by them even though it doesn't feel inherently like this is not, you know, quote, a good death in the way that normally we have tried to facilitate it, right? Turning off the alarms, lowering the bed rail so that they can be at the bedside, all of these things that we teach. This is just totally different now. On the day that Carlos was transferred to Wellstar Kennestone, approximately 21 patients per month had died in the Kennestone ICU due to COVID-19. That was over the prior 14 months, so just less than one a day, two weeks before he was transferred the Kennestone visitation policy had changed to green, meaning that because the COVID numbers were trending down from the third wave, the relative risk for infectivity was lower and the restrictions on visitation were loosened. This also meant that clinicians had more face-to-face -face interaction with family members and less time was spent at the bedside assuming their surrogate role that's always been reserved for spouses, children, grandchildren, and other loved ones. That alone provided a window of respite and perhaps lessened in some small way the burden that many were carrying. Unlike many patients, Carlos didn't have the same degree of access to family. He did have one biological relative, a cousin, who lived nearby as well as a good friend. They were invested in his care. His cousin visited when she was able. She was responsive by phone. And as they had with so many patients prior, the Kennestone team was intentional about using technology to connect Carlos with his family of origin in Mexico. We built a good relationship with his family, both in the country and outside the country. I mean, he had a good friend that visits him as often as the lockdown allowed him to be, always there. He has a cousin that was always available over the phone. She worked really hard, but every time I would call her, she'll take time off work and answer the phone. Every time we asked her to come in, she's, she figured out arrangements. She would be there. And, and every time she could have a video chat opportunity with him, she would be there. Um, so would his friend. Um, every time he had the opportunity to video chat with his family out of the country, he would. And even with those people, we were able to video chat with them as the medical team. And we talked to them and we interacted with them and we built a relationship with them. Um, all his family members, inside the country and outside. But early on, even when they could have backed away due to the more flexible visitation policy, the Kennestone team leaned in. They admired his determination, enjoyed the interactions, and found motivation seeing him succeed. His progress occurring at a time when emotional and physical fatigue was peaking. 52% of Wellstar ICU nurses reported in a June 2021 survey 
that they felt that things had piled up too high to manage. At Kennestone, 71%. Individual bandwidth was running low, and hospital staffing was reaching a critical point. Many of our staff had quit. Many of our um, staff was being supported by travel nurses, etc. They were unfamiliar with our, you know, the sickness of our patients. And so, you know, it was, it was a very low point in, um, in, in the morale of the ICU. And in the case of Carlos, he was indeed the source of hope and optimism. And um, he's, he was all of those things. Over 2,000 published studies tell us that hope is one of the single best predictors of well-being across the lifespan. Hope is the belief that your future will be better than today and that you have the power to make it so. Hope is a social gift. Hope is not something that happens in isolation within us. It happens in relationships with each other. Our connectedness with each other is one of the single best predictors of hope. Our connectedness with others, our connectedness with something greater than ourself, uh, hope is a social gift. Those were excerpts from a July 2021 TED Talk by Dr. Chan Hellman, professor of psychology at the University of Oklahoma and director of the Hope Research Center. In the prior episode, we established that Carlos was caring for the caregivers. Another way to say that is that he was offering the social gift of hope. And I wanna dig a little deeper to show how that came to be. Physical therapy evaluated Carlos within two days of his Kennestone admission. The medical team was weaning sedation. He was seen the following day, wide awake and able to follow verbal commands. He was able to stand with adequate balance and with a gate belt around his waist and handheld assistance, he was able to walk approximately eight feet from the foot of his bed and transferred to a chair nearby. Unsurprisingly, he was described by his therapist on that first visit as pleasant and eager to cooperate. This element of hope was always there. And it's amazing. It's amazing how, how strong people can get. And you, you were standing at the door, big door and looking at them. How, how can one be so resilient? How can people be so strong? I mean, he's going through all this, but you know, no, fam, no family either. I mean, he is trusting us blindly. Although mobility came with increased coughing and drops in his oxygen saturation, the physical therapy team rounded on him daily. Within 12 days, Carlos was showing signs of incremental progress. He was able to ambulate 80 feet, and then after a brief rest, another 60. Two days later, he was able to walk 140 feet in one stretch, which entailed two laps around the ICU with a two minute rest break. In total, he tolerated about nine minutes of walking that day. He was very motivated always. He wanted to get up and walk, he wanted to get stronger. You know, this is different from usual respiratory failure on critical care patients, most critical care patients, right? You know, they're, they're on life support. They're somewhat attended and not sedated. Um, they're not, they're usually don't interact with their true personality. And here we are interacting with him on the highest level of life support. Everybody gets excited for that. We had our little pom-poms up there that we do our little cheerleading as he's going around the unit. 
um, doing really, really well. Let's keep them motivated. Like let's keep them on a sleep schedule. We're not, we're not having this icy delirium. Whether he was responding to the encouragement of his caregivers or just willing his own way to recovery. The next day, Carlos walked 340 feet. The day after that, he walked three laps around the ICU. He would walk around the, the ICU. He would like do three laps, and sometimes he would walk too fast, <laughs> too for our staff to to keep up. And you know, we made the joke that, you know, who was more tired? Actually, the um, um, the staff was you know, more tired from you know trying to keep up with him. We're there. We're there. We're actually holding him, pushing him, encouraging him. You know, we're walking with them. It's not that, you know, when, when I'm not on service, we get our reports, but we are on service. We are there. We are there. We're holding his hands, you know, encouraging him, giving him the feedback. Uh, something that all of us need to help us keep forward. On his 18th day as a patient in the Kennestone ICU, Carlos himself set a goal to walk four laps around the ICU. He accomplished his goal in 14 minutes, taking one-minute breaks on each lap. On day 19, he walked five laps and an estimated 1,043 feet. Our goal is, has always been to make sure this person gets to the highest level of functioning. But as Arlene Kilgore, the manager of acute care therapy at Kinestone explains, 1,000 feet is a particularly significant marker. For a transplant, the patient needs to be able to walk a thousand feet. We really just established that as our goal for all ECMO patients. So we were in with him very early. We very quickly got him walking that distance. I was getting to the point where I didn't know what else to do for him in this setting. He was just doing so well. Hillary Anderton, another physical therapist who had yet to work with Carlos at that time, began hearing stories of his progress during staff meetings. So when I heard that Carlos was walking a thousand feet on just normal oxygen and ECMO, I thought that was crazy and amazing. Here's this guy walking a thousand feet. At what point is this skilled PT anymore? Does he really need PT or does he just need to walk? Hope is about three simple ideas, goals, pathways, and willpower. We have to understand that both pathways and willpower are required for us to be hopeful. We have to have both the motivation for the goal as well as the pathways on how to get there. We have to have both. Applying Dr. Hellman's formula, Carlos was a paradigm case for hope. First, he was mobilizing the recovery goals that Arlene Kilgore's team of physical therapists had framed. And he was even setting his own goals. 1,000 steps met a specific marker for transplant. Secondly, his drive was clear and he was cultivating the collective willpower of the team, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, everyone, working together to help him recover. The same word we heard describe Carlos, determined. This attribute was being displayed by the care team as well. And the third and final ingredient for hope, there was an assumption that pathways were in fact available. The other thing that's important to note about these patients is they have two path exit pathways from ECMO. One, recovery of the native lung function, which allows them to breathe independently and you come off ECMO. There are some individuals who um, will never have that recovery. And so the exit strategy for those individuals 
is lung transplant. Before COVID-19, the window of time to determine whether or not to continue ECMO was about two weeks. But like Dr. Tripp, who talked about how COVID-19 changed the way care had been delivered, in a positive way, the pandemic created new eligibilities for how ECMO was utilized. So if you go to the days before the pandemic, our paradigm was in about two weeks' time, if a patient is not showing signs of improvement, we would start exploring the possibility whether there is any chance that this patient will improve, and if they are not, to then have a discussion with the family about stopping ECMO. So two weeks. And we did this even at the beginning of the pandemic because this is the paradigm that we were applying. And the data supported that if patients did not improve in two weeks' time, the likelihood of that would go down. The only time where we um, would deviate from this path was if the lungs were slower to recover, but the patient was otherwise capable of doing other things. They were walking, they were cognitively in, intact, etc. The pandemic has challenged this notion because there are lots of instances, including our own experience, where patients who are supported with extracorporeal support, ECMO that is, they do get better even after weeks and even months of therapy. And in fact, there was recent precedent for a patient with a clinical picture that was similar to Carlos's. And this patient was on ECMO around the same time. We put him on ECMO and after almost 60 plus days of being supported, um, we were able to prove to um, the transplant center where we send most of our patients locally um, that he was eligible for transplant. The things that they need is they need to be able to see them walking a certain distance, that they are well nourished, they do not have any other organ system failure, that they are cognitively intact. And of course, they need to have the means to support a transplant, both the process of being put on transplant, which is expensive, but also post-transplant care. He was very similar in all those regards to Carlos. Similar, but not the same. There was a vital element that made the situations very different. Carlos was undocumented and he was uninsured. Although these facts were known, the gravity of what that meant to many Kennestone clinicians was not always fully appreciated. It's true that in some cases, a patient without insurance can be approved for transplant, but it takes a tremendous amount of work to build the case. There are many instances in which insurance is overlooked um, if it is only for the purposes of doing the surgery, but the patient is able to find other means to support themselves post-operatively. You know, churches and um, other groups do help with that, uh, but you have to have very good documentation that that kind of support is available before you can do that. So gen that uh, is generally the overview of what makes somebody a good candidate for transplant and what doesn't. And in the case of Carlos, the problem was that he was an undocumented immigrant with no insurance. And uh, that was something that we were prepared to even overlook. So we were preparing a case to present that here's an individual who's a great candidate for transplant, except the insurance. To even present his case, Carlos would have to maintain the progress he'd already made 
obtain approval by a transplant center willing to waive the cost of the transplant itself and secure funding to support a lifetime of immunosuppressant drugs, clinic appointments, etc. It was a steep uphill climb. And then 22 days into his Kennestone stay, things took a turn for the worse. That day, Carlos struggled to perform his exercises with physical therapy. His oxygen saturation dropped to 68% when ambulating. And for the first time, his treatment response was characterized by his physical therapist as poor. The next day, he actually seemed better. He tolerated exercise, and he was able to walk two laps around the unit. And the next day, he was back up to five. But the transient decline just a few days prior was a harbinger of things to come. In mid-June, Carlos acquired a second occurrence of nosocomial pneumonia. He required intubation, and a few days later, a tracheostomy was performed given the onset of secretions that were impacting his respiratory efficiency. Just a week after having ambulated over 1,000 feet, Carlos was now unable to tolerate sitting for more than two minutes on the edge of his bed. And some of the nurses were very, very emotionally involved because this gentleman had, you know, it was like a roller coaster. One day it would look okay, one day it would look terrible. One day he'd be running around in the ICU and the other day he would be unresponsive. Sessions over the next week were comparable, but he did show some signs of improvement, transferring from the bed to a chair with less difficulty, for example. A couple days later, he was able to tolerate sitting on the edge of his bed for over 11 minutes, maintaining his oxygen saturation in the low 90s. But with further exertion, he desaturated quickly, and over the next few days, he had progressive weakness and was unable to participate in PT. As a developing pattern, just as his trajectory appeared to worsen, Carlos would seemingly bounce back, and physical therapy re-engaged with him. That same level of determination and persistence that he had shown the Kinestone team when he was walking laps around the unit, it still remained. Andy was fully cognizant. It was obviously a big change from walking a thousand feet to barely being able to stand up even with two people pulling him. But just seeing the differences that he recognized as well, he remembered walking laps. And here it is five or six weeks later when he started to ask questions like, why can't I stand up? Why do I feel this way? Why are my legs numb? The reason? His body was too weak. Native lung recovery was not occurring, and transplant was no longer within the realm of possibility. ECMO, which held so much promise during the early days of his treatment, now seemed like a bridge to nowhere. And with pathways seemingly closed and hope for recovery dissipating, the team began wrestling with existential and ethical questions. What do you do? when a member of your family has run out of options. And ECMO is the only thing keeping him alive. I've said
This was episode three of Parallel Pandemics, a Mind of Medicine podcast made possible by the Wellstar Health System Foundation. This series is dedicated to all of our frontline healthcare workers, the pillars of compassion. Please support our clinicians by subscribing, rating, and sharing the series. The intro and outro music in this episode was by Nashville singer-songwriter Matthew Perryman-Jones. You can check Matthew's music out at mpjmusic.com. Thank you to Wellstar's Clinician Wellbeing and Resiliency Team and to the Malesko team for helping coordinate, facilitate, and produce this project. For the continuation of this story, tune in for episode four.